This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker Spine and Orthopedic Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Tung Ha, a neurological surgeon with Fourth Corner Neurosurgical Associates in Bellingham, Washington. Dr. Ha, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Lauren. It's my honor and pleasure. Now, um, I know we have a lot to talk about. A lot is happening in the spine and orthopedic space. But before we dive into the questions, can you tell us just a little bit more about yourself and your practice? Sure. Um, So for medical school, I went to Ohio University College of Osteopathic Medicine, and then I did my neurosurgical training at the University of Kansas. Um, After I finished in 2007, I uh, was in a the military, um, United States Army, and I was uh, stationed at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, where I served uh, for four years from 2007 to 2011. And uh, those were uh, amazing years for me from uh, uh, being exposed to um, uh, great people and uh, also new technology because the at that time, the artificial disc was just being introduced into the uh, armamentarium of spine surgeons. And so I had an opportunity to... Um, explore that service line and become very proficient at it. And so it also made me realize that uh, when I finished with the military, there were really kind of two options, either be employed by a hospital system or um, go into private practice. And, you know, actually having someone um, uh, being being exposed to uh, uh, a system that was, um, uh, I guess, more socialized, in a sense of uh, there wasn't too much difference between the pay between a private practice, excuse me, a primary care physician versus a neurosurgeon. I felt that uh, I, I needed to um, stake out my own future and uh, have good control of it. And so um, I was introduced to Bellingham, Washington, and that's um, I went up here and it, there was a private practice opportunity, and I didn't realize it was one of the last few ones in Washington. Most of the Seattle practices in Tacoma are uh, employed, um, and uh, one of my mentors, Rich Wones, was still in private practice down in uh, in Tacoma, and I I sought to create what he had down there up in Bellingham, and so when I came up here, um, I joined Fourth Corner Neurosurgical Associates, and um, I had a vision of creating a spine-centric uh, um, outpatient center. Um, because I realized that uh, in private practice, you cannot survive on your professional fees only. You need to have ancillary, and you need to have um, um, uh, your own center so that you can provide the care that you want to. Um, And uh, so that's what we created, the Cascade Outpatient Spine Center. We began this project in 2013, and our first case was done in 2016. And, you know, I, I guess... My perspective from the military and also like geopolitics right now, in order to be sovereign, you have to have your own land, you have to have your own building, you have to have your own staff, you have to have the ability to hire and fire your staff and not be subject to um, the politics of the hospital. You have to um, be able to choose the equipment that you work with and your partners. And so my vision was that everything that we needed, we need to have in-house. And so we have 30-plus employees doing everything from authorization to billing to coding. Everything that, um, any process that's mission essential should be, you should have positive control over. And so that's really helped us weather the storm of, uh, of um, COVID, et cetera. And, uh, and it's uh, led to a very fulfilling practice. And um, I couldn't imagine myself being anywhere else other than here. 
And so I'm very grateful for um, my partners. And um, so we have a total of four uh, neurosurgeons, and we do 90-plus percent spine, and uh, I have one interventional pain management doctor and colleague. And, um, and so together we form uh, Fourth Quarter Neurosurgical Associates and the Cascade Outpatient Spine Center. Fantastic. Wow. That, that's such an amazing career journey that you've had. And, you know, really interesting to, you know, think about that different um, the decision-making process for whether to join a hospital or um, private practice and how to really be able to run and operate an effective private practice um, these days, I think, you know, is so crucial. So thank you going, for going through all that. Now, when you look ahead, what do you anticipate some of the top challenges being for, for this year, 2022? Yeah, and I would say staffing, and um, we we see that uh, at our local hospitals. So, you know, with um, the number of nurses, particularly or uh, any caregiver, um, for that matter, um, dropping out of the workforce, there's been a demand. So, for example, if um, if there's a vacancy in New York, and they're paying that nurse literally twice as much to work there. And and if he or she can move from Bellingham to there for a temporary assignment, that leaves a void over here. So that's going to get filled by someone from Georgia, and that hole in Georgia is going to get filled by someone in Texas. And so this little um, uh, merry-go-round or musical chairs of vacancy has just kept driving up the cost of uh, employment. And so for for us, it's I mean I've given my staff uh, easily a 25% raise this year just for retention purposes. Um, because they can literally get paid twice as much working at the hospital. And so what we have to offer is consistency and um, no call and also a, a family-friendly work environment. So everyone I work with is a family member, um, and, and I, I really enjoy this environment and the collegiality. And so if it's really about the chemistry as opposed to going to the hospital and realizing that the surgical tech that you're working with is from Colorado and has only been there for two weeks. The, the nurse that's the circulator is, um, has been only there for uh, one month and is from Texas. And you don't know them from Adam. And if you need a certain equipment, they don't know where to find it. And so that, that can present uh, as a frustrating challenge uh, from time to time. So definitely staffing. Um, we also, you know, with supply chain, uh, increased supply costs. I, I think everything from gel foam the thrombin has literally doubled in price if you can even get it and so um, even though we belong to several GPOs um, they may just have empty shelves and they can only allocate so much to us at one time and so it kind of goes back to that idea where uh, everything that I if you need something you don't want to outsource it and so the day that you know Detroit can't make a spark plug is the day they can't make a complete car and if our product is spine surgery then I need to have all the assets necessary. And so, um, you know, even though we have a policy to stockpile equipment and, um, and uh, supplies, that sometimes just the source is not available. So that, that's been a challenge as well. That's really interesting to hear about. And I know, you know, healthcare providers across the country are dealing with the staffing challenges and supply chain as well. And when you think about, you know, you're kind of in a unique position being a, in a physician practice as an ASC trying to run a lean operation while also, as you mentioned, stockpiling some of the supplies and making sure that you have what you need to keep the business operations running. 
Um, how do you strike that right balance of, of just making sure that you're using your time and space efficiently and effectively with um, storing the supplies and in, in, um, kind of managing the supply chain while also knowing that, you know, the future is to some degree uncertain and, and needing to um, divest, invest the right kind of resources to keep things um, steady going forward? Great question. It's a, it's a delicate balancing act, but my thought process was I would rather have medication expire than for us to not be able to do an operation because we don't have saline or um, thrombin or any other medication out there. And so um, it, it's, it, it's a challenging because um, efficiency and lean is, is one side of the argument, and that needs to be balanced by redundancy. So I never want to have a single point of failure in um, our practice. Um, and so we, we focus on redundancy in skill sets. Um, if I'm operating and I happen to have a heart attack, I want to know that my, uh, my junior partner can step in right away. And so we, we have redundancy in um, almost all of our uh, mission essential processes from billing to coding to the front desk to the clinic um, and medications. And, and so that is it. It's about redundancy. Um, and that, that is the counterbalance to efficiency. But... Uh, I think that it, it's, it's served us well so far. Got it. That, that's um, great to hear. Now, when you think about growth, what are some of the big opportunities for you in the practice over the next year or so? Yes. Um, and so, you know, back to COVID. So when the hospital, our local hospital, and actually if during um, uh, this last month when our Governor Jay Inslee uh, announced um, um, a pause on elective surgery because of the Omicron uh, surge. So from, I believe, uh, February 17th to March 7th, excuse me, January 17th to February 17th, there was a pause on, um, on uh, elective procedures. And, and fortunately, the leadership of our hospital, which we have a great relationship with, recognized the value that we bring to the community, not as competitors to the hospital, but actually where, hey, you know, fortunately, um, you know, if you have a problem, you can get care at the ASC still. And so, for us, we've become a pop-up valve for the community, and so, you know, at one time our hospital was, you know, quite full with COVID patients, and we were able to, uh, to still run a very efficient operating uh, center here, and do, um, you know, essentially all we do is spine surgery, and so we were able to take care of the spine cases here, and we were quite busy, not just during that time frame, but especially during um, the peak of COVID, and so. The, that's one uh, component. Um, and, you know, patients still have a psychological fear of going to the hospital, so they would actually still prefer to go to an ASC. Um, and last but not least, but prior to this podcast, I was on um, a uh, telemedicine consult for a second opinion from, from New Mexico. And so by virtue of having all these platforms available, I think it's easier for people now to get second opinions um, um, nationally as opposed to just um, down the street. And so this other person who is actually a doctor was going to fly up for an operation. And so I think uh, having um, the platforms available and telemedicine being uh, commonplace now is, uh, I think, an opportunity. And last but not least, geography. So we are located 20 miles south of the Canadian border and 90 miles north of Seattle. And so with um, our, our encatchment is... Uh, is quite nice. We're the only neurosurgical group for three counties, and so um, when when the border um, 
uh, requirements get relaxed in the next few weeks, we'll have more Canadian patients coming down who are also in desperate need of care as well. And so that's, uh, those are the opportunities that I see uh, in front of us living in um, Bellingham. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so interesting. And um, too, I'm thinking about how you've incorporated the virtual care and telemedicine into your practice. You know, what percentage, I guess, going forward, do you see uh, of your patients being able to connect with um, beyond, you know, the local patient base that you had before the pandemic, but, you know, going forward, how big of a role, I guess, will telemedicine play, do you think, in your practice? Um, truth be told, I, it, it, even actually during the pandemic, it played a small role because, Medicine and neurosurgery specifically and spine surgery is a tactile. It's a physical exercise. It's not, here, take two pills and call me in the morning. I can't percuss someone's leg over the screen, and I have to lay eyes on them and physically evaluate them. I know there are some articles out there on how to do a telemedicine neurological exam, but I think that pales in comparison to human interaction. And, um, you know, I have a, a strict policy on who gets surgery by me. Um, does what you tell me match your imaging and match your exam? Are you height and weight proportional, non-smoking, no controlled diabetes? Is this a relationship I want to be in? Is this a relationship that we want to be in? It should be a mutually respectful, mutually consensual, mutually beneficial relationship. And if I'm not having that warm, fuzzy feeling, I won't offer the patient surgery or I'll recommend that they get a second opinion. Um, the policy number uh, eight is I don't offer anyone surgery without meeting who's going to take care of them. And that's actually very important for um for folks who uh, drive 20 miles away. So if you live further than 20 miles from me, I insist that you stay locally um, because I don't believe in slashing and dashing. But that also applies for um, medical tourism. So when patients come down from Canada, we ask for them to stay in a hotel locally. And this gentleman who's flying up from New Mexico will make arrangements for him to stay in our, to stay at a local hotel that we contract with. And so at the end of the day, that the, it's casting a wide net of from a virtual visit, but, it's at, but I still need to see patients face to face. And it's it's interesting that how people crave human interaction, and even at the height of the pandemic, when nursing home patients were not allowed out of their uh, uh, their confines unless for uh, except for a medical visit, and so. I would have little old ladies get dressed up and come to see me and just because they needed to, to see a human being instead of being locked up in their solitary confinement. And um, so we'd spend an hour chit-chatting. And if that's what they need, I'm happy to do that. So, you know, it's really taking about care of people and not um, not just the film. And um, and so that's, that's at least how my practice uh, functions. And so policy number nine, you have to have the safe place to recover and Number 10 is that I am not God, I'm just human. I just do my best for people, and I want to be a value-added proposition. And so um, many come, but few get chosen for surgery in my hands. And so I think that the telemedicine platform just allows a large, larger encatchment for upfront. But um, ultimately, it's still um, uh, a physical endeavor, a surgery that is. Absolutely. I think you make a really good point, you know, in talking about the relationship you have with patients and um, those who, you know, make sense to move forward with a surgical procedure. Um, it's just so interesting to hear your thought process there and the programs that you have set in place. Now, when you're thinking about technologies and innovation, what are some of the most interesting things that are out there today? Yes, um, I, I would certainly think that we're on a robotic uh, revolution right now. And I think that, um, 
from an image guidance standpoint, you know, just uh, when I was in training, we we used uh, plane films and then you know for, then C arm and then um, now the navigation. But I, I really think that the um, robotic spine platforms are going to be revolutionary, and I, I believe that most of those will be um, done at the hospital because the technology is expensive, and I don't know if it's going to be. Uh, something that um, a freestanding ASC can uh, afford, unless they change the um, uh, the leasing options, et cetera. But uh, and especially, and if they change the reimbursement for robotics, that might be um, a path as well. But uh, I would I would be very curious on how this changes in the next five to ten years. But um, but I am also. Um, a big proponent of minimally invasive spine surgery where applicable, and I think that that's that, that's exactly what we do at our practice. And um, and so you need to have uh, a skill set to do um, not just big deformity cases, but uh, MIS as well. And it's a different skill set for sure. And uh, last but not least is motion preservation technology. You know, with um, uh, the first artificial disc I put in was not MR compatible and FDA approved only for a single level. And now we have um, artificial discs that are MR compatible and also um, uh, with FDA approved um, approval for multi-level, two levels that is. And uh, that's that's a game changer because, um, you know, if, uh, if, if there's an option to have motion preservation as opposed to fusion, that might be a better option. And so those are the things that I see on the horizon that are here right now and that are only going to continue to improve. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's really interesting when you talk about especially the minimally invasive spine surgery and most preservation. I think both things are um, techniques and aspects that have, of spine that have evolved over the past, you know, 10 to 15 years for sure. But you know, really in thinking about um, where their role is going forward, do you, you know, see the minimally invasive and motion sparing techniques, um, you know, becoming largely more prevalent or, you know, where's the place, I guess, still for, for fusion, if that makes sense? Yes, I, I, absolutely. I still believe that there's a role for fusion. Um, and it's actually the opposite. It's where um, every patient that is probably a uh, motion preservation patient is a good fusion candidate, but it's not the opposite. Where not everyone who um, has a fusion, or who is a fusion candidate, is a good motion preservation candidate because it's motion preservation, not motion restoring. And so, part of my algorithm for working patients up is to make sure that they have normal sagittal alignment. And I obtain a flexion extension X-ray on all my patients to make sure that there's actually motion. And um, and if they don't have it because they're auto fused already, I just tell them that it's it's better for us to do a fusion uh, as opposed to um, a TDR. That's good to know. Well, the last question I have for you here before we wrap up our conversation is just thinking about the past few years, COVID-19 has been so present um, in our everyday lives as well as in the healthcare industry. What do you think the lasting legacy will be of COVID-19 on orthopedics and spine? Yeah, well, I think that um, first and foremost, staffing. Um, I think that it's once we increase people's salaries, it's hard to um, make an argument to decrease it, um, and so that that will affect the bottom line and also um, how much redundancy in staff we can have. 
Um, but at the same time, I also think that the world and prior to this, the United States was uh, a land of uh, abundance, and we can realize that there are actually um, there are limits, and so we might have to allocate, uh, excuse me, um, ration care when the time comes if uh, if COVID rears its ugly face again, and people are used to waiting now as opposed to having things done yesterday, and so I think that that's that's a change in the mindset where. Um, you're now you're being told no when before it was always um, yes 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 or I can have it my way and so you know you, you can't you know you can't have surgeries there's no beds available at the hospital so like even today actually I was checking our census and it was about 105 percent full. Wow, that's so, so that interesting. Down for any elective cases. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so you're still seeing you know the the hospital being pretty full. Um, yeah. One reason or another. Yeah, and not because of COVID per se, but it's just yeah. because of the pent up demand there, you know, for the last year and a half, two years. People who needed hip replacements, knees replacements, spine fusions, uh, anything that required um, uh, an inpatient uh, stay or on a or patient with more comorbidities that prevented them from having outpatient procedures, there's a wait list. Absolutely. That's, you know, interesting to hear and I'm sure it'll be that way for a while just as the backlog um, gets resolved as much as possible. Dr. Ha, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fascinating discussion and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Yes, Lauren, thank you. It's been my honor. Have a great day.